Hi, this is Derek Harp, the founder and chairman of CSA, the Control System Cybersecurity Association International, uh, and your host for the CSA podcast. And today we've got another episode in our security leader uh, stories, our security leader interviews. I'm very excited today to be interviewing uh, Jim Crowley, the chief executive officer of Industrial Defender. So welcome to the show, Jim. Thanks. I'm delighted to be here, Derek. As you and I discussed, sort of uh, this is a, a series of interviews designed to really shed light on people's career path and journey and choices that were made. What we are hoping for is that a lot of people will find some value, inspiration, ideas for their own career journeys and and, uh, decisions that they may be making now or need to make. It never fails that each of you at the stage of career that you're at now have some interesting things to reveal uh, about your own story. You are an extrovert, a well-known sales expert, and extrovert certainly goes with that. And you've held a lot of sales positions, which we'll talk about. But you're also uh, an outdoorsman and a, a family man, a father and a husband and uh, a saltwater fisherman. Uh, I understand uh, some competition level even in that. Yeah. So uh, funny story is that we're out fishing one day and we realized there was uh, three uh, former VPs of sales all hunting the same tuna. So we hunt by hunt during the, the week for deals and hunt for fish on the weekends. I guess it's our DNA. I'm sure there is some sort of like analogy parable story there, you know, something about you know teaching a man to fish. I, I don't know where we're going to go with it. I bet there's something there to tie it all together. That's great. So let's talk about your early stages. Um, I, I always sort of liken people doing security work as sort of modern day superheroes. We have a big problem and all superheroes have a backstory. So let's let's go back your early days. Where did you grow up? So I grew up just south of Boston, not in South Boston, one of the suburbs, just south of Boston. And uh, what uh, do you recall what your, your very first sort of job, something you did to make money? I was asking. Yeah, well, I had a I had a I grew up in a large uh, Irish Catholic family. So there was always uh, a lack of spare change. I had a paper route by the time I was in uh, third grade. I recognize that same thing. I'm Midwest family educators. And if I wanted to do something, I had to figure out, you know, something extra. I had to fund it. And so I had a big lawn, my lawn mowing business. So it was either papers or lawn mowing. And so you, right. you had one, I got option B. <laughs> so uh, any introduction to technology in those early stages? Not really. I mean, there wasn't a lot of tech around during my formative years. I mean, it really wasn't until I got into college where I started to see the first computers and they didn't even have digital interfaces. It was still punch card stuff that we, that okay. we were using at the time you know, running a statistics program, loading everything into a to an IBM system via punch card loader. That was the that was the beginning and you know, sort of the, the the late 70s. So you're just a little bit older than me because my brother who was five years senior to me was doing cards. They were doing a bunch of stuff. It was going off to a company that lent evening time and all the being fed, they'd come back the next day. And this is a high school work he was doing in I think Pascal programming or something. So by the time I got there, they just no longer doing that. So it was right on the cusp of the end of that. Yep. What did you study for your, your undergrad? History. We do. And did you not get told by somebody that, there, that you wouldn't be able to do anything with that except be a teacher? <laughs> no, I. my goal initially was to go to law school. So, you know, I had that. At least I had that answer, Pat, before I uh, before I went down this other path. That's great. I, I very rarely run into someone. But, yeah, I, I, I also have a history degree. I. I find kind of I found it interesting and studying what we did in the past is some can be somewhat informative to the future as well. Let's talk about getting out of school and and uh, what happens first professionally. What do you what do you choose to do? Actually, had uh, had worked as a uh, an accounts receivable clerk collecting money for an office furniture company during college. So uh, the afternoons I would you know done people and 
kind of pretty used to working the phones and having sort of aggravated people on the on the other side, pretty successful at it. And the uh, owner of the business offered me a job in sales. And I'm like, I hadn't really thought about sales, but I was like, huh, if he's going to offer me a job in sales, maybe I should look into this, right? And I decided not to stay in upstate New York where I went to school, but to go back to Boston. So I uh, applied for some different jobs and ended up getting into a sales training program with an industrial product company that serviced uh, a lot of the a lot of the uh, manufacturing firms that were based in, in New England. In fact, most of the products I sold back then are now classified as hazardous waste. We had a nice line of asbestos. We had red lead paint. We used to sell 55-gallon <laughs> drums of trichloroethylene to the Navy Yard. So I got to know sort of the industrial space from the bottom up, taking apart machines, putting packing in, and really, really being on the plant floor at a pretty early age. Well, I was on a, a Navy ship in the mid-90s for some years. I probably had some of your... Uh, you probably your, did. You probably had our stern packing... Uh, healthy stern materials packing. nearby. <laughs> okay, well, this is interesting. So that is one of the questions I ask is when do industrial componentry systems intersect with your career? And so they, they do right away. Very, very early on. They sort of shifted as the, as the factory started to, to slow down and close in northern New England. We had a lot of auto parts up there that were supplying a big plant that was in, uh, in Massachusetts. I saw, sort of saw the writing on the wall for manufacturing in New England. Uh, and I had an offer to go work for a uh, software company that, of all things, was writing software for petroleum distribution. So and it kind of shifted my industrial story into selling so- software and hardware to petroleum distribution companies. Fairly early days in the computer industry, but I'm pretty sure they hired me because I could carry a 100-pound computer up three flights of stairs to do a demo. Yeah, what, what were they called then? Luggables? Luggables. So these these were actually mini computers. These were mini computers because they weren't mainframes, but they were they were pretty good size. They were called micro minis, but they weighed between 75 and 100 pounds. Yeah. And they didn't have any handles on them. And they were usually in a case. So you had to kind of lug them up the stairs to the office. I'm so glad that the quote from, you know, whether it's true or not, the quote from the IBM chairman supposedly of that era was the computers were going to get ever bigger, the size of, you know, of cities, and that they went the opposite direction. <laughs> right. <laughs> yep. Okay. So now uh, industrial has been introduced. Now software is being introduced. And I think security software gets introduced pretty early in this as well. Yeah. So sort of in the early 2000s, I, I made a, a, a shift from sort of enterprise software, the petroleum distribution software into, I had an op- opportunity to go work for a, a company that was uh, actually securing intellectual property documents. You know, I saw that as an opportunity. It wasn't. It was a company that was helping prevent the the theft of 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 IP from you know nation state actors like China. You know, we did a lot of government work as well. You know, we secured the presidential daily briefing and so forth. But it was it was really about securing content and making sure that the intellectual property of American companies didn't end up in the wrong hands. So yeah, this, so this is um, you know kind of. For you, you've got industrial, you've got cyber, you've got software, all these sorts of things. People are always asking, where are the people that are working on control system related security coming from? Are they engineers that were working formerly hardcore engineering applications in plants or refineries and that learn cyber? Are they cyber people that learn a little bit about engineering and about safety and reliability? You know, the truth is there's a mix, right? But you had a number of then early sort of ingredients that all filter up into sort of being in this space, being a leader in this space today. You know, when I landed at uh, Industrial Defender in, in 2010, that was a relevant background because I had spent some time in, in cyber. You know, I, I'd moved from that content company to help introduce some of the first application firewalls. 
you know, the financial services companies on Wall Street. So I really got my really understood networking pretty well by the time I kind of came out of that experience. So I could kind of marry the the industrial background I had, the subject matter expertise I had around things like, you know, petroleum distribution to, you know, this new control system world, which I was just starting to understand. Because at the time, you know, you were people were being hired into Industrial Defender, which which was the original OT security company. You either typically we were looking for somebody that either had a an OT background that came out of Honeywell or ABB or something like that, or somebody that had a security background. And the thesis was we can teach people one side or the other, but we can't teach them both. So we weren't hiring sort of generalists. We were looking for someone that either knew security or new OT. Now, of course, you know, 10 years plus later, there's, there's a wider variety of people. Actually, a lot of them came out of uh, Industrial Defender to populate a lot of the companies that are out there today. In fact, I trained a lot of the people that are salespeople in this market. So there's more people that know both sides. But, you know, 10 years ago, that wasn't the case. Yeah, well, for sure. I I, I was studying what you guys were doing when I started a company, uh, co-founded a company in the space around 2012. I think you guys, you have to be the original. I don't know if there's anybody that predates you as far as trying to do that. I mean, Tofino, maybe Eric Byers. No, I uh, talked to Eric. He said he said we were earlier than him because our, okay. our tagline is our tagline is we invented OT security. And I just wanted to confirm with Eric that there wasn't stepping on his toes. Okay. Uh, he, said, yeah. no, he said, no, Tofino, we, we were actually founded in 2006 here. You know, we okay. came out of the old Foxborough company ecosystem. So, you know, and some of the folks are still here that, that were the original designers, uh, of some of those systems. So we have a lot of control system DNA at Industrial Defender, probably, I would say a heck of a lot more than a lot of the people in the space. We really understand control systems pretty well. Yeah. It's interesting. I, I like the way your background sort of fit together. There are people who are on these distinct paths, and then there's a, a much, much later injection of one of these two you know, sides of things. You actually started very early on having exposure to sort of each of those components and pieces. And that, that's got to be quite useful. I mean, when I'm thinking in terms of a lot of the sales roles you've had, there are people in sales roles in this space, you know, that let's say they came from traditional IT and they haven't learned the vocabulary and constraints of the operating technology environments. They they misspeak. What's your kind of guidance to someone? Let's say someone coming from, for, in this case, let's say coming from the IT background that doesn't really know control systems or operating technology. There's some things to learn to be an effective leader, salesman, whatever role they want to take, right? What we do here is we actually partner up one of our project managers with with a person that came out of IT or came out of security to really help them understand the sort of the nomenclature and the terminology. So because, you know, in any company, there's a lot of there's, there's a lot of um, internal uh, IP that that we can uh, that we can share with new employees. It's just a matter of matching up them correctly so that we can get them trained and up to speed correctly. It's not that hard to take you six months to, to really make that transition. Uh, but you have to focus on it and have to want to learn it and, and become that subject matter expert. So let's talk about uh, any sort of challenges uh, along your journey there. And and uh, they don't have to be specific to sort of our, our space, but they could be. And the things you recall that were challenges and how you overcame those. Yeah. So, I, you know, up up here in Boston, there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of startups. Right. That's the big ecosystem is up here. Yeah. We don't have as many you know, really large tech companies like you'd, you'd find out in, in uh, on the West Coast. So, you know, we don't have the Apples and the Salesforces and the, the Microsofts and so forth. So we tend to have a startup ecosystem and, and you have to get, you know, if, if that's the, the world you want to live in, you have to start to get smart about what to look for. So and you may make some mistakes along the way. There's nothing wrong with that. I mean, if you, you know, advise young people like take risks, you might make some mistakes, it makes, might make some stumbles along the way, but learn from them. So, 
you know, one of the things I learned is that it's not necessarily about the technology that will make a company successful. There's other tangibles, you know, who's funding those companies? Is it smart money? Have they been successful in the past? What's their track record? And what's the management team like? Have they done it before or is this their first time? So there's some ways to take the risk out of that equation if you want to hop into uh, into the startup world. I, you know, I sort of did that by trial and error. I think that's good advice even for uh, even for more mature people, which is is now the case, right, where they might be leaving a large corporation to join growing number of companies, younger companies, let's say, in yeah. this space. Startups or younger all, you know, have a quotient of risk, right? You just gave sort of a checklist. I think that's a, a, a really uh, a good share, sort of like things you could look for on the front end kind of screening process. Yeah, who's got the who's got the money in the deal? You know, who's the management team? Have they been successful yeah. in the past? And then sort of technology's third. Yeah, I think that's great guidance. A lot of people do focus on the product, but we all know some great products that never seen the light of day because the execution, the team that had to bring them to bring them to market and make them work, that's where the real work's done. That's absolutely Oracle was not the best database when they all came out. They were the better marketing company. Yeah, now that makes sense historically. I think that's been true for other sectors too. You know, Google was twelfth, the twelfth search engine or something like that. Right. So yeah, take a look at the team. That's a, that's a great one. Let's talk about uh, collaboration. How have you seen collaboration work at the various companies that you've been at uh, and not work and, and advice sort of around that. We've got a lot of dysfunction, right? In our industry sector, even within a company, people that don't trust IT, you know, not trusting somebody over here or, or plant operators, not trusting somebody from corporate IT and all these sorts of things. And not to unpack the, the all those challenges, we, we, they're just there. And so getting people to communicate and collaborate and learn from each other is, you know, I believe sort of essential to all this. What have you, what's your experience been in that whole arena? My experience working with, for example, the, the energy companies that a lot of times can be you know, distributed. You might have a utility that's got a headquarters in the Midwest, but they have uh, operations in Boston or Philadelphia or D.C. And those people may not know each other. You can actually be a conduit and help them connect across the company. So it's one of the things that we, we did pretty successfully here early on was, was try to put all those people in the same room. You know, maybe today we do it all in Zoom. But hey, do you know so and so from this from this organization? He's got your same job. He or she's got your same job in that organization. Oh no, I don't know them. Can you make an introduction? And you would you would assume that they would know each other, but they don't. One of the value adds, sort of beyond the technology or the business value proposition, is it's just sort of those people skills. Can you help facilitate things? Can you help facilitate communication because they don't have that role? And we were successful at driving a lot of business just by making those introductions. And, it, and at times just saying to the IT teams and the OT teams, hey, we all want to do a meeting together and, and be the facilitator and get them all in the same room together because they don't know each other and yeah. they don't have a reason to meet. And if you can be the reason, if you can be that glue that puts them together, you're really adding a lot of value to that organization, regardless of what your product is. I think that is another awesome takeaway. Uh, that's an opportunity uh, to one to do a good thing. Businesses in certain you know need, but it's also a, a, it's a great entry point for you. I mean, for someone in, in a role of trying to bring some sort of product or service into some place, that's a servant servant leadership sort of thing, right? Do, do that for them, bring them together, help facilitate that. Regardless of whether they end up buying product or service from you, you've done a good thing. That's awesome. Industrial Defender, and then you go on to Threat Stack, Security Matters. Then you're back at Industrial Defender. Yeah, it was it was kind of it's been a kind of an interesting uh, bunch of years here. So yeah. I came in here as VP of Global Sales and helped build the business up. We were growing it at thirty percent plus a year. We got acquired by Lockheed Martin. Lockheed had divested it at one point just to get out of the they get out of all the non DoD businesses. So to sort of make a long story short, I'd gone on to do a couple of other things, entrepreneurial things, and uh, got a call back 
here from here about two years ago to say, hey, I think we can carve this business out and stand it back up as a standalone company. And when I look, took a look at the product and the, you know, my old team was here, super excited about but bringing ID back as a standalone brand. So we're really starting to, to get a lot of tailwinds in this market right now based on what we're, what we're doing. So it's exciting to be back here. In those spread of years, there, there is, you know, the, the thermometer has gone up some, right? Maturity wise, as far as the industry sector, everybody measures it differently. I know where I thought it would be and others I was working with in 2012 is that in the next five years, it'll be X. And it didn't, that didn't happen. It didn't become a mature sector. Today, is it mature or is it maturing? I think it's maturing. The big shift has been a lot of the jobs we used to win were compliance driven, and we still do a lot of that work. But and that was the main sort of business driver. But there's a much more detailed risk conversation going on today in the boardroom, saying, "Okay, what's really my risk here, and what's driving the investment in cyber, and certainly cyber and OT is the risk conversation." And that wasn't true. I don't even think three years ago, when these ransomware attacks started to emerge as a, as a very visible and potent threat. And started shutting down, you know, certain businesses. Boards started to pay attention, started to get religion around this. So, so I think there's, I think the last three years has been a big inflection point, and we're seeing it not just in sort of the core markets that we always operated in, you know, which are broadly energy, chemical, oil, and gas, but now we're seeing transportation and pharmaceuticals and maritime and a bunch of other markets that are sort of early in their security journey, but there's certainly the early adopters there that are that are starting to instrument. So let's talk about you go from director titles to vice president titles to CEO. What role has mentorship played in your personal journey? I think along the way, there were some people that recognized that I, you know, I wanted to move up in in the organization. You know, and one of the challenges that you have, certainly when you're a, a salesperson and a successful salesperson, which I always was uh, when I was, you know, carrying a bag, so to speak, especially if you're working at a lot at a small company. They don't want you to do anything else. You're too valuable in that role. If you're the rainmaker and you're bringing in, I remember certain companies that's bringing in 70 or 80% of their entire revenue, they don't want to promote you. <laughs> right? Don't touch. Don't, don't touch. touch. Don't, don't touch. But at the same time, to move your career along, you realize, okay, well, I don't want to be doing this as successful as it is and as fun as it is and as lucrative as it is. I need to, I need to continue to grow my career. So I had some people along the way that recognized that and, and helped me make those jumps from, you know, sort of the you know, the regional salesperson to the regional sales manager to the regional vice president, and then I'll, and then up the food chain. And some of that too was when I was successful at, let's say, a regional job for a particular CEO, he called me back to come in and be the VP of sales at his next gig. It was sort of like I made the jump from one company to another based on, you know, prior performance with the same people. So that speaks a lot to the power of relationships and maintaining them and keeping bridges built and things like that. That yeah, sounds like a bridge. Don't burn a bridge as, as much as, as attractive as it can feel it sometimes. Yeah. Just you never know. And it's a cardinal rule not to do that. Yeah. It's too small, right? Uh, in the grand scheme of things, too small a community. I'm amazed when people maybe exit not in style. I'm like, Exit in style. If you're going to leave with the best, you know, you're free to leave. I mean, I, I know there's some maybe business owners and CEOs that don't treat people that want to leave very well. But the truth is, I've always thought if you're going to leave and you treat us well and you do it well and you do it in style, that's that's life. And who knows? Maybe in the future we'll work together again. It's like you don't know. Right. Don't burn bridges. And, and, and that's why also for the staff or your colleagues, you have to you know, I always say put people first, put their personal situation ahead of whatever other business consideration that'll pay dividends down the road. So yeah. you know, as an example, when we, we had to rebuild the sales and marketing team here, 
nine of the 10 people I hired in the last year have worked for me in the past. So you build, and that's a value that you bring along to the, you know, to the business that you can, that you can bring in good people and you can bring them in quickly if you need to, because you have those relationships and you haven't burned any bridges and you've treated people well, you know, along the way. Yeah. And this really gets to the heart of sort of these, these sessions, you know, what advice and you're already doing it, you know, would you can, what other things do you think of that you would, you would tell somebody who's like, I want to navigate in this particular space, this control system, cybersecurity space. I want to become more valuable. I want to move up. I want to do well. You know, what sort of things would you potentially recommend that that person, you know, do either based on your own experience or just observances now as CEO of Industrial Defender? I think this is sort of broad advice that I give to younger people when they're trying to figure out their career moves and how do they move you know, how do they progress in their career? And and one thing I've always said is when, you, when you're sort of evaluating where you are in a particular situation, I think there's really two important things. One is, am I learning something new? Is this job, am I learning something new? Is this increasing my skill set? Is this going to help me two, three, four, five years down the road? And the second thing is, am I being treated well and compensated fairly for the role that I'm in? Now, in my view is you can stay in place if you know, ideally, both of those things are in place for you. And that's the, the perfect job. Hey, I'm, I'm being treated really well. I'm being compensated properly. And I'm learning something new. That's great. No, no reason to kind of move or do anything, right? Just live the dream there because it doesn't always last that long, right? If you get one of those two things going on, you're being compensated fairly, but you're not maybe learning anything new, then yeah, maybe okay to stick around. Same thing the other way. You know, hey, I'm learning something new, but maybe I can make more money up the street, but I'm learning something new, so I'm going to stick around. If neither one of those two things are, are true, I'm not learning something new and I'm not being treated fairly or compensated appropriately, it's really time to take a look and move on from that position because you're not helping you're not helping your career and you're probably not really helping your company all that much either. That's another great, great nugget. So the, 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 if I summarize that, it's, it's a, sort of a, a quick little checklist. And if you're progressing, your knowledge is progressing and your compensation arrangements are adequate or great, you know, that could be a perfect situation. One of those things could work. And, and if you're compensated well and getting and not for whatever reason, not learning anymore, you could augment that. Right. I mean, there's a lot in our industry to access as far as new information, reading webcasts. I mean, our organization is now doing a session every single week and we're getting you know hundreds of people to every single one. It seems like there's an insatiable appetite, but there's still people out there who aren't necessarily plugging into the variety of resources that are out there, but that's something you could do. So, if, you know, it'd be hard to fix the compensation part without obviously getting right. parties involved, but you could fix the the learning growing part. It could sure. be tangential or, or sort of a separate yeah. path. But in the end of the day, if both of those are zeros in that column, you know, you're just, you're stagnating and it's time to, yeah. time, time to take a look around either inside that company or have a discussion with your boss that, you know, things aren't working and, you know, how do you fix it or go find another assignment. Yeah. Just on a, on a personal note, what excites you today? And, you know, I suppose related to that, are you enjoying being back at Industrial Defender? I love this market. I love the I love the customers. I love the people that are in it. I even like most of my competitors, not love them, but I like them. I just like the industry and I like the mission. I really like, you know, I, I've worked in, in other markets from time to time, you know, you know, working with insurance companies or down in Wall Street. And you know, it's just not that exciting trying to make the high-speed trading systems trade a little faster or trying to make the bankers more efficient, which, you know, probably isn't possible. But this is a great mission, you know, trying to keep the lights on, making sure your neighbor's tanks are full of gas. There's really sort of a greater good to what we're doing here. And, and that's true of the industry as a whole. I really enjoy this. I'd, I'd rather be here than, you know, anywhere else in my career right now. 
that's awesome. And I, I know, uh, based on your reputation, you put in some, uh, some long hours as sort of your regular work schedule. I think that goes with, you know, both being, you know, in, in a sales career, a lot of time away from home, a lot of time in airplanes, and certainly as an executive, either running a sales department or a CEO, you know, obviously COVID has, has put a little cramp in, in my style in terms of traveling and being able to yeah. get out in, in front of customers and stuff. But yeah, the, you know, certainly the time commitments are pretty heavy. Uh, although I, I do think we're not going to be quite as, um, you know, trigger happy about hop, hopping on a plane these days, uh, yeah. even when we go, go back to whatever the new normal is, because I think people are, you know, more willing to accept a couple of Zoom pre-meetings before we before we all get together. And that that's going to be helpful to, I think, you know, family stress and, and travel budgets and any other number of benefits. So, yeah, you're right. And that genie sort of out of the bottle, right? The, the, the disbelievers are like, you know, if you don't do this face-to-face, you don't do that face-to-face, you can't be successful. There's been some evidence that that's, that's not the case now. That's, it'll be interesting to see how much new normal, you know, snaps back to reality or, or to old right. reality or is somewhere in between. If you were to sit down with your younger self, um, you know, oh, going back to the you know, late 90s at E-Prize, any advice you would give your younger Jim? I probably would have, and even before that, I, I probably should have taken a pause relatively early in my career, you know, probably when I was 30 and gone and got an MBA. You know, that's it's sort of one of the things that uh, you can learn most of that stuff along the way. And I don't think it's really a, an issue for me now, but but I think it would have been helpful sort of mid-career to have that business degree to go along with uh, the liberal arts degree I had. I would say getting that advanced degree would have been something, you know, looking back on it, you know, and or, and or actually keeping up with my uh, with my language studies, which uh, sort of fell apart after college. So those are a couple of things I would say, like if you have an opportunity to to keep your language skills up, you never know where you're going to find yourself in your business career lost in Ecuador, uh, you know, in Quito at six o'clock at night. And you're trying to remember the words in Spanish, right, that to get back to the hotel. They came back to me, but it took a while. So there's times when you really need those those language skills. That's an interesting one that I don't think anybody shared, but uh, this is a, a truly global industry space that we're in. The problems from our surveying and research are ubiquitous. It doesn't matter where you are in the world. The challenges are, are the same. And, and there is opportunity for a lot of roles to be traveling or to be interfacing with you. And if you're not traveling, even if you're on, on a Zoom call uh, with people in, in other countries, and, and that would be a differentiator, right? If you are maybe at any stage, but the earlier you are, the more time you have in your career, that having uh, additional language capability is probably a, could be a pretty big asset in this industry. Absolutely, absolutely. And, and and if you think about it, you know, like you know, we're, we're working projects in Brazil, Austria, the Netherlands right now. So there's there's beyond sort of our, our you know, Mid East. So lots of places, lots of different languages that uh, that would really burnish a resume and make people make people attractive. You know, we're looking for some folks in in Europe right now, and if we can find someone that speaks both German and French, that's a kind of a shoe in. That's another interesting takeaway. If you were if talking to a, uh, an engineer, so let's say a you know a double E or whatever, and they they really know their engineering environment, their plant environment they've been working in, um, or or at an OEM, they want to go into the cybersecurity of that you know of that sector that they're 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 you know potentially an expert in the engineering part of it. What do you recommend they do first? I would say before they sort of put themselves in the market, you know, start to take advantage of the education that's out there. Really understand cyber. There's, you know, take some cyber courses. There's basic cyber courses that are available at community colleges. Really start to get an understanding of what what the frameworks are. And then I think also don't get too enamored with the all the fancy tools and technology out there, but go back to your engineering roots and, and pick up a NIST standard 
and take a look and say, what is what is the NIST cybersecurity framework look like and how does that apply to my control system that I'm working on today? You know, and that would really be, you know, a way for them to start to put the pieces together because, you know, all the frameworks that, that are out there, whether it's the CIS stuff or the NERC SIP stuff or NIS or 62443, you know, these standards really speak pretty well to the to the OT security hygiene that's required to, to harden these control systems. And if you're a double E, you know, you take a look at that stuff, you'll be able to identify what we're talking about pretty quickly. Yeah. I've heard uh, that understanding, you know, uh, networking, you know, not, not necessarily even cybersecurity, but just understanding networking and how the yep. transmission control protocol works and all that stuff, that that is sort of a, a key component for any branch you might splinter it. You might go lots of different directions, but that piece is sort of central to all of this. Exactly. I mean, the, you know, the network is, is sort of the key. What about somebody who is, you know, let's put the other hat on. They're an IT practitioner and they want to sort of branch into this operating technology control system space. What do you point them to first? Well, I, I think you can go on the other side. There's, you know, there's power control system classes that they can take as well. Take a look at, take sort of a SCADA system 101 class somewhere and really understand what the process control market's like. You know, maybe they can pick up some some education off of an ABB website or Schneider website, go to those OEMs and really try to see what content they have on their website and what they're talking about and, and what they're pitching in terms of their, of their, uh, of their equipment uh, and how it fits into the, into the, into the broader spectrum. Yeah, that's interesting. I, I took away from what you said that if you knew, for instance, a vertical you want to get into, for whatever reason, you knew you want to get into the electric sector, then you could dive into those equipment manufacturers and, and yeah. those, the Duke Energies, the Southern companies, there's materials and things having to do with that space that you could just dive right into. You could go on to, I'm sure if you went on the ABB website, they probably have nice videos about what their substation gear does. What do what the voltage regulators do? What do the relays do? You know, and, and, and explain that type of thing. So let's talk about the future. If you had to look ahead and somebody was saying, hey, what kind of technology or what kind of, uh, uh, you know, could I study something now to make me invaluable later? Would that be uh, machine learning or artificial intelligence, you know, what robotics, drones? What kinds of things are you looking ahead? One, are you excited about? And two, you say, yeah, if you start studying this now, looking ahead, you know, around the, the curve of the earth, you'll arrive X years from now at, in, a, in a nice spot. I, I would take a look to see if you want to stay in the OT world how these OT tools are going to migrate over time, at least some components of them into the cloud. You know, what are the vendors doing? What, what's ABB doing? What's Schneider doing? What's Honeywell doing around, around that infrastructure? Either deploying it, a private data center, or even in, even in you know, sort of a public cloud. But what are they doing to sort of cloud enable that stack? Because that's, that's where things are going, right? The technology that we have today is going to change. There'll always be, you know, OT technology that's on site, but the backend processing of that data is going to be in the cloud. So they should be thinking about how, what's that connected point going to be like? That's what, that's what's coming down, you know, five, 10 years down the road. Yeah. Everything that I've, you know, observed for the last, certainly the last few years and sat in on some lectures and things, more and more things you wouldn't normally think are, that are going to be connected to the cloud are going to be. Manufacturers are going to require for that $50 million turbine to be under warranty. We're going to not only get data from it, but maybe even able to attenuate it or adjust it, and which scares the crap out of security people. But the money that's at stake by being able to adjust all those turbines is millions and millions of dollars. So that will drive that behavior. It will. And also the premise that my data on site is more secure than the data in the cloud has is, is just been knocked down. There's no evidence at all that if you're a utility and you're running your own data center, that that data center is physically 
or or from a data perspective, more secure than what AWS is doing. Now, AWS or Azure, you're gonna you're gonna make sure you secure your applications when you get them up and running there. But the actual physical data center and the access to the uh, you know the network there is a heck of a lot more secure than anyone else is gonna build. You know, sort of from a private perspective. Now, people still still don't necessarily believe that, but that's a fact. Is there any new technology that you're the most excited about? I think it's really enabling the technology that we have in place today, right? Which hasn't been done particularly well. So if you look at sort of the AI stuff that that you might find uh, in a Splunk or a dark trace or whatever, companies are just starting to figure out how to get that OT data into those applications. So you really are having that. We've talked about this ITOT convergence for as long as I've been in the space, but it really hasn't happened at scale yet because it's hard to collect the appropriate data off of those endpoints and move it in. It's really about how do you, to me, it's not so much about, you know, what's what's new and shiny coming down the road, but how do you actually execute on what's in front of us right now over the next two to three years, that there's better operational and visibility into what's going on in these environments and there's some efficiencies. We just, we, we aren't, we're not going to be able to hire enough people to throw enough bodies at this problem. So there has to be automation put in place. And the tools are there. It's just a matter of companies like ours and others stepping up and making sure those integrations happen and happen, and that they're that they're useful. That's just not just marketing hype. I'm glad you said that. It's it's not like we're going to be solving a workforce problem shortage now, right. and we're taking we're connecting more and more things, more tax surfaces than there, tomorrow than there are today. So to say we'll solve this with human more human beings is not really the way we're going to solve this, right? I mean, we, we need to train, we need to support, we need to build more workforce. Our organization, our association wouldn't exist if that wasn't a huge need. But you commented on a good thing is that we got to use the technology that we have better and the data and the the anomalies, you know, that go completely unnoticed. We, we've got to use technology better so that the human beings that are trained and involved can be more effective. And reduce the level of risk that that everyone is experiencing right now. Well, any last words uh, to share with uh, with the workforce? Uh, this is a great space. I have a ball working in this space. I, I, I like the people we work with. I like our customers. Like I said earlier, I even, I even like some of our competitors. It's a good mission. It's, it's a good thing to get out of bed and do every single day in terms of hardening the critical infrastructure of the country. I hope more people that are that are young people that are thinking about, you know, where do I want to go with my career and what I'm looking for something sort of beyond you know, just sort of the the day to day, you know, there's a sort of a greater mission. You know, this is a good industry to join. Thank you for that comment. I totally agree with you and believe that that's true. And thank you. I, I share your sense of mission as well. Thank you for being on this path. It's critical work, you know, and I, I joke at the beginning of these sessions about people choosing to work in this area as being superheroes, but we've got a big societal problem and, and any, you know, concerted effort on many of our parts to make this work, right? I mean, it's required. We have to strive and do it. And you've been in it for a while. Exactly. And, and just to, to add on to that, we have a customer that is managing a very large uh, substation where they're bringing you know, power down from Canada. And during the middle of COVID, they were doing three weeks on, three weeks off, sleeping in that substation and trailers. So back to your superheroes, those guys and, and gals that are in that substation, making sure that that circuit doesn't go down, you know, which supplies a lot of the electricity here uh, in New England, they're superheroes for sure. And we take that for granted, right? As a society, that these things just stay on, and they very the rarely go away. No in the background, what's what's happening? Yeah. I thank you for your commentary and sharing your parts of your journey. I've just been interviewing Jim Crowley, Chief Executive Officer of Industrial Defender. Uh, Jim, thank you for joining us and for uh, uh, coming on the show, and and uh, again sharing from your personal experiences. Thanks, Derek. It's my pleasure.
Take care. Be well. See you guys next time.